we are not an Apple household. <laughs> yes, uh, shocking. I'm glad I'm we sitting are, down for this news. We are the opposite <laughs> of that. Bill, not an <laughs> Apple fan? Right? Hello and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am your co-host, Martha Sullivan, librarian and book discussion uh, book discussion cowboy. <laughs> and I am here, as always, with my co-host. Uh, I'm Pete Romberg, space cowboy, because uh, I'm rewatching Cowboy Bebop right now. Oh, I had to lead a book discussion at work today. Oh, fun. <laughs> Uh, adult, um, adult or teen? Adult. It is one that I was covering. I just hired a new person, and the role that she is filling um, would will take over this book discussion um, after she's been here for more than three seconds. Sure. Um, but so I was covering it uh, in the interim today. Cool. Yeah. Uh, we are here, as always, uh, to discuss a large picture issue through the lens of popular culture and media. Uh, and today's a doozy, folks. Um, <laughs> our subject today is the rape revenge thriller film. Uh, but before we get into that and all of the uh, sub and not so sub context of what that means and what that looks like. Uh, we're going to sp uh, spend some time discussing our what's stuck in our heads. And I'm going to make Pete go first because in this case, we are all Pete Romberg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Martha and I are recording on the 21st night of September, which if you remember is the Day listed in Earth, Wind, and Fire's song, September. Uh, and for the past, I want to say five years, uh, comedian, Twitterati, and podcast host, a host of Gilmore Guys uh, podcast and guest on various other podcasts, uh, Demia Dijuibe has been creating these amazing videos where he's dancing and singing along to Earth, Wind, and Fire's September. Uh, today he dropped what he says is going to be his last of this series. Uh, it's his last September video. Yes, I know. You, ga you gasped. Um, he's raising money for various good causes through this video, auctioning off a lot of stuff. Uh, it's an eight minute video this year because he does the dancing, uh, does the, and by dance, dancing is not doing credit to what this video <laughs> is, um, but he's doing the dancing, uh, and then he's doing the shilling of like, yeah, we're, we're raising funds for these things, we're auctioning some stuff off, uh, and then there's the credits, and I would urge you to stick around and watch the credits, watch the whole eight minutes of the video, um, because it's lovely all the way through from beginning to end. Uh, when I say it's, he's dancing, I'm talking about some insane, how did they do that kind of camera works, tricks, all these other things. Every single one of these videos is just a, a true, true delight. Go back through the archives, uh, which I think just means his Twitter feed uh, or YouTube, and watch them all. Last year's was just a, a burst of joy in the midst of a weird pandemic summer. Uh, and this year's is equally a burst of joy in what was supposed to be hot vax summer 
and which uh, in many places turned into hot, oh my god, the ICUs are all filled out because people didn't get vaccinated summer. Uh, so It is worth mentioning that Demi got his start so in the social media sphere on Vine. Hmm. So he uh, sharpened his video editing skills uh, at the altar of the six second Vine. R.I.P. Uh, Vine. Truly. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I have been a fan of Demi's basically since and because of Gilmore Guys. And he just continues to be a delightful presence. He hiatuses from Twitter every once in a while, and it's always a tragedy. Uh, when he is, it's not probably it's probably good for feed. him. Oh, for <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> we we suffer. He prospers. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, he's he's a frequent guest on a, uh, the podcast Blank Check, which I brought up on this before. Um, and that's that's sort of where I know him as my touchstone. And then his September videos. Yes, he's great. Uh, so continuing the theme of naming months in our our media. <laughs> Uh, so listeners of the podcast will know that my current favorite living author uh, and currently current, my favorite author who is alive and currently working is Shannon McGuire. Um, I love everything she does. AKA. And Mira Grant. There we go. I, I did not. Because she has both nom de plumes, I forget that they're one and the same. So I did not immediately clock when you wrote, um, Shannon McGuire here that that it was also Mira Grant, uh, who we yes. have who we have had his homework on this show. Yeah, she writes uh, fantasy under she, she writes fantasy under Shannon McGuire and sci-fi under Mira Grant. Um, but she has a long-running paranormal or like an urban fantasy investigation series. Hmm. Uh, the main character's name is October Day. Uh, these are very similar to the um, Laurel K. Hamilton fairy books, only they're not erotica. So that was the the one that you assigned for homework many moons ago. The it's the Court of, of Thrones. There we go. Um, but yeah, so Toby Day is a changeling in the San Francisco Bay Area, and she is a knight sworn to the service of one of the um, Hollow Hills fairy kingdoms there but also she rents an apartment in the bay area so it's very like fairies existing at the edges of the mortal world and how those two things inter intersect and how her humanity lets her be a more effective investigator because she knows about things like crime scenes and forensics <laughs> um there are about there are mm, a number of these it's a, it's an ongoing series. Um, I have been reading them at a rate of like one every day and a half <laughs> over the last week or so. Yeah, the fifteenth the fifteenth book just came out. Good lord, she is an incredibly prolific author. Oh yeah, she puts out a couple books a year. Um, she's incredible. <laughs> she's incredible. She's consistent. Her Wayward Children books are like the books of my heart. I. They're novellas that are absolutely um, life-changingly incredible. And October Day is like pure mystery comfort food. Um, each trade is about 400-ish pages long. And yeah, like I said, I've been consuming those at a rate of like one every day and a half, two days. Um, <laughs> nice. 
uh, the one I'm in the middle or the one I'm about two thirds of the way through right now uh, has mermaids in it. So I'm uh, th- th- the Venn diagram is a circle like for you. Yes. Like, oh, look, it's aquatic cryptids and also uh, uh, Shannon McGuire. Right. Which yeah. is also into the drowning deep. Yeah, Amira Grant I, I, I know. That's why I brought that up. <laughs> also, every title of the October Day books is a three word Shakespeare reference. Out brief candle. Not yet, but the one I'm reading right now is called One Salt Sea, which is from a line from The Tempest. Mm. Um, uh, that's awesome. I was thinking Tempest when you said that. Yes. Sweet. Yes, her books are delightful. I love them very, very much. Uh, and these have just been really fun little nuggets of fantasy, mystery, hunting down bad guys, doing crimes. Nice. We are going to take a quick recess. And when we come back, ooh, trigger warnings <laughs> everywhere, y'all. <laughs> We're going to get into the the uh, long and sordid history of the rape revenge movie. are back so today we are taking a look at the rape revenge movie uh we're gonna touch on its cinematic origins and take a look at how it has progressed how it has perhaps been reclaimed uh and a look at the kind of the modern incarnation of it uh what we mean when we say rape revenge movies Uh, These are typically exploitation movies. Uh, They are typically cataloged as like horror or thrillers. They're usually very violent. uh, And they typically deal with a person, usually a woman or a girl, uh, being raped and sometimes murdered. And then revenge being taken either or revenge being enacted either by them or on their behalf. Uh, Pete, you want to introduce our first piece of media martha i want you to remember that to avoid fainting you need to keep repeating it's only a movie it's only a movie it's only a movie because it rests on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell that's right our first piece of media is the last house on the left the 1972 wes craven original his first uh cinematic film um which was a technically a movie uh it is a it is a a, a, we pick this because it is frequently considered the foundational text like the first rape revenge movie or at least the first one to really gain the first one to really gain mainstream traction okay i was gonna say the the like the actual um Yeah, the actual, like, quote-unquote, first rape and revenge movie is an Ingmar Ingmar Bergman movie called The The Virgin Virgin Spring, Spring. which this is kind of a remake of. 
Right. So Last House on the Left is the first one to kind of... It, it created this genre because Virgin Spring is an Ingmar Bergman film, which is like, it would have been played in art houses. Uh, Last House on the Left is what if that but grindhouse exploitation. Um, yes. and for, and that birthed the rape revenge genre as we know it in current cinema, uh, because the current genre is not art house fair based on 18th century Swedish poems. Um, it is based on what if we take last house on the left and blow it up to, uh, to the next stage. Um, last house on the left is about, uh, uh, Mari, uh, or Mary, uh, spelled M-A-R-I, which is why I keep saying Mari. Uh, Collingwood, who is a 17-year-old just celebrating her 17th birthday, decides to go out to the big city of New York to celebrate, go see a, a band with her friend. Uh, they run into some crazy escaped murderers who have just gotten out or slash escaped from prison. Um, bad things happen to them, and then it just so happens that the, uh, uh, murderer-rapist crew, the caravan, um, shows up at Mar at Mary's house. Uh, with her parents. Uh, her parents discover that her, their daughter was uh, raped and murdered by these uh, crazy psychopaths and take their own revenge on them. Um, this movie is barely a movie. Uh, it's also, it's it's deeply weird, deeply strange. Uh, 1972, we're talking just bare bones budget and it looks it, um, but also weirdly funny in many ways, which I kind of appreciated. And I, I think the most, like, the important thing for this, which is a through line, at least for our second piece of homework, is that um, Wes Craven wanted to read, like, he he liked uh, Bergman's Virgin's, uh, Virgin Spring. He wanted to do something like that, but he also very intentionally wanted to show as much violence and blood as possible because he thought that a lot of movies at the time, specifically Westerns, were very um, sterile uh, in their depictions of violence. And this is coming out in 72, height of the Vietnam War. We're seeing all this violence on on TV on, on you know, Walter Cronkite. But then we go to the movie theaters and it's all bloodless, uh, goreless, all the rest of it. So this is Craven dialing up the gore for 1972 levels in a very intentional way. Um and and when we talk about revenge, our next piece of homework, I I had that in mind as I was watching that as well. So it's interesting that you bring that up because that's also something that we talked about when we did our westerns episode mm -hmm. with the Wild Bunch, which came out in 1969, and was also a response to that perceived bloodlessness. Yes, yes, uh, in cinema. But anyway, we're talking about uh, we have a we have a slightly different topic. Um, so yeah, this movie is mm, shaggy, um, <laughs> which is uh, yeah um, one of the things. So I've also been watching all of the Scream movies, mm. um, also done by Wes, Wes Craven. That's a, that's an yes, interesting arc for which is which is you. why I I bring them up because. I feel like in Last House on the Left, you can see him feeling out how to mix horror and comedy. I don't think he gets it in Last House on the Left. There, There's a joke in, in Last House on the Left that I'm still kind of laughing at, which is like the, the murderer rapist's car has broken down. And they're just like 
they they've opened the hood and they're figuring like they're trying to figure out what's going on and some dude took out the oil, takes out the oil stick and says like i see what the problem is this thing's got a bunch of oil on it uh and then some other guys like what they don't teach you anything about mechanics these days and i like i don't know that was just very funny to me <laughs> um but then also it's like oh are any of these people actually actors <laughs> because uh, none of them read like actors and there we, we should mention there are some you know there there are troubling stories about the production of this where uh the the main bad guys in this were very much method actors and the woman who played uh uh mary um uh sandra peabody has said since the then that she was pretty traumatized on set because many of the uh, the bad guys treated her out of character in the same way that they were treating her character in character, um, which is not great. Also, it's 1972, so there's a lot, and it's a, a you know, a three mil or a, a low budget exploitation film. This is not to defend it, but to place it within its context. Yeah, the. <sighs> It is interesting to me that in this movie we see all of the violence and none of the rape. Mm-hmm. Like I'm not really I'm not really complaining, um, but I definitely think that there is a focus by Craven on the like the like cutting up of these two girls, um, even like the the humiliation aspect um yeah there's much more humiliation than actual rape there's a lot of implied rape i should say i was gonna say i would hesitate to draw such a distinct boundary between the two of those things but like we we see them cut these girls up we don't see them raping them which i'm not complaining about right um but the, the key is here is that we see a lot of the cornerstones of this genre of film um, on display here. So, like, we have two girls, one of whom is fairly innocent uh, and is kind of led to a wilder side. Um, she is taken from, like, the country to the big bad city. Um, they get picked up by the, the evil people because they're looking for a weed dealer. Um, <laughs> and they and going go about, about it just the most silly way imaginable, but also it's 1972. So in truly. New York, so whatever. And all of this is intercut while her parents are decorating the house for her birthday party. So I, I, I had a thought while watching, especially this early part of it. I, I am not the first one to say that many horror films are inherently conservative because the way that you get people afraid is to go after the fear emotion, and that's a very conservative value. And a lot of this movie could be read as a very conservative movie, like, ah, New York, it's so scary. Ah, weed, ah, it'll take you down the path to getting murdered and raped. Um, But it's also weirdly very progressive. Her parents are... the, The first scene where... Her, uh, she's leaving to go out and like she's talking with her parents is the conversations they're having are weirdly very progressive and frank um and then also her parents are very horny for each other 
Um, <laughs> which is kind of delightful to see. Like, that is not what, like, you could easily see this movie being made with her parents being, like, tightwad, you know, 1950s, like, it, it's 72, but, like, you know, 1950s adults who's like, young lady, how dare you go out without a bra? Where instead her dad's just like, ah, you're going out without a bra, I see. That's a weird take. I guess that's what the kids are doing these days. Which, like, weird your dad's mentioning that, but also good that he's not shaming you for it like no but then the movie does have sort of a context problem with the fact that yes all of those things are true but at the end of the day she is still punished like well like and, and it well, is she she still ends up in the position that she's in because um Right, you because know, she, she decides friend... to go to the city and all the rest of it. Yeah. Right. But but then on the other flip side, the cops are treated as bumbling nincompoops. Like, they're the comedic break the entire movie, which is, like, again, that undercuts the conservative element of the film. It's it's a very interesting, like, this movie could be way, way, way more conservative without meaning to be, simply by not having the, the cops in it at the all. The cops... The cops being ineffective, I think, is also a rape revenge hallmark because because they are so ineffective. We don't question Mary's parents' decision to take the law into their own hands. Like we need to not believe in the cops so that we understand and are rooting for them when they start shooting the murders in the face. And it is important to remember that this movie was made in 1972 when white people did not have as healthy of a skepticism about the police. If you were older. Well, uh, sure, 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 sure. But like, there is that scene where like, there's, there's a bunch of like young ragamuffins who are like, the cops are trying to get a ride because they've run out of gas because again, comedic bumbling buffoons. Um, and it's like some hippies in the car and they're like, yeah, yeah, f the pigs. I was yeah. going to say, uh, as I was, as I was saying that, as I was saying that, I was like, Martha. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, like, yeah, we, we don't like the pigs, uh, type move, type move. Um, but we still, we do still need to be on Mary's parents' side. But here's when... the, like, I think you could cut all the cop elements out and we would still be on her parents' side because like they give the necklace the necklace like the necklace is the token so like if then the like their daughters rapists and murderers show up at their house even if if they had not even if the police had not been effective i still think the audience would have been like no yeah murder them to death because think, you have the clear you know i think so too i just also think that that is a trait shared by many films sure. of this ilk sure 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 not not disagreeing with that um, I'm, I'm just commenting that this, and, it, and maybe it's Craven's sort of unique touch to it, but it's, for a movie that could be so conservative, and which in many ways is, it's also weirdly progressive um, in, a, in a context of 1972. Yeah, I don't know that... I... Mm... Yeah, I don't know. the The tone of this movie is rough because it's all over the place. It, it's all over the place. Like parts of it feel very much like a very special episode of a TV show, mm -hmm. and like you're saying, parts of it are almost like slapsticky. Yeah, like we we go from a special episode to a like 
Laurel and Hardy sketch with like some cops trying to hitch a ride on a problematic race relations chicken truck. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that I think that part of that is I think as a filmmaker, Wes Craven is pretty liberal. I think as a genre, this tends to be pretty conservative because at least in its origins, it is about def- either defending or avenging the honor or virtue of a violated young woman, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is a very conservative ideal. Um, uh, and, in ter- I, I think- and in terms of budget, he had approximately $5 to work with. So like at the end yeah, of the day, so I, think what, I think what we're seeing here is um, an attempt to reconcile an essentially conservative trope with a progressive with an essentially progressive filmmaker. Yeah. Yeah. Who is also male. Um, and I think, although I will give Mari's mother a lot of credit, um, in this movie, she has sort of a key scene where she bites the dick off of one of the, uh, assailants. I'm wondering what your, your vibe on that scene is because like, she could love it. I was going to say, you know what she could have done instead? Lure him into the woods with her feminine charms and then stab him to death without, like, you know, blowing him first. Yes, um, that is, that is again, another another hallmark that tends to pop up in these rape-revenge movies when we have... When the character enacting vengeance is the one who was initially violated, it is not uncommon to see them seducing their assailants into another compromising position so that they can physically punish them. So that is that is a role that is being taken over by Mari's mother in Mary's mother. I'm so uh, glad you're movie. also saying Mari. Okay. That makes yeah. me feel a whole lot better. Yeah, it's pronounced Mary. It's spelled Mari. It's dumb. Yeah. Um just spell it with a Y, guys. It's fine. I, I think it's because <laughs> we're trying to do the Virgin Spring thing, but like, if you're going to do that, just call her Mari. Yeah. Um, so I think that is what is happening with her mother. Um, I don't love that trope in kind like for, like for that's any another, reason. That's right. another hard one for me. Um, we're going to get more into that one later on in the episode. Um. Like, why can't she just shoot them in the head? Like, yeah, or, or, or again, lead lead dude out into the woods and then um stab him to death with, if you want to go feminine, I don't know, some scissors or something. Like, you know, whatever. Cut his cut his dick off with some scissors. Yeah. Um. So one of the things that struck me about watching this movie for the first time is how little, t- like, this is a foundational rape revenge movie. Only the last 20 minutes of this are actually dedicated to the actual, like the revenge portion of yeah, it. Yeah. We spend a lot of time in, in violating and brutalizing these two girls. And I guess that's part of the exploitation part. Um, but I don't know. I guess I expected the balance to be different. So, so this movie is blissfully only 84 minutes. Um, God, isn't it feels that it feels a lot longer, yes, it but does. but also blissfully a, a short 84 minutes. Um, and, and you're right. The balance is off, but also within that um, 
let's call it 60 minutes of of you know if it's a rape revenge movie the 60 minutes of the rape versus the 20 minutes of the revenge a lot of that time is spent just like dicking around and not doing anything um like we're not there's a lot of time showing the brutalization because again it's a it's an exploitation film it's a grindhouse film um and we have to live up to the impossible to live up to uh to avoid fainting keep repeating it's only a movie uh i think the the best thing about this movie is it's um uh promotional materials which make it seem like just the absolute most horrifying thing you've ever seen and then you watch it's like that's barely a movie um but but in that uh, uh to circle back like in that time of brutalization there's also all the like we're following the baddies just driving around in their cars and having car trouble following the police and now they're having car trouble at Mari's uh parents house they're having phone trouble um and so it like it's it's like the balance is way off you're not wrong but that's also because the balance during the first part is also like all over the place uh so at this point i would like to segue into our next movie cool uh so the next movie we're going to talk about is the 2017 film revenge directed and written by coralie fargier fargiet fargier Ooh, it's french uh, you were right the first time fargier yes or also asterisk i don't speak french um, so yes, this is a French movie, uh, about Jen, a young twenties, something beautiful woman who is on a, uh, weekend getaway with her married, um, boyfriend, uh, which is his, uh, to his vacation house in the middle of the desert, uh, which is interrupted by the arrival of two of his hunting buddies who are there for a bachelor's hunting weekend, uh, they show up early. They inter interrupt her vacation. Uh, and after a night of all drinking together and some suggestive dancing, and I'm sure what she thought was just having a little bit of fun, uh, Jen is raped by one of, um, one of her boyfriend's friends. And when he, when Richard, her boyfriend, tries to buy her silence... She threatens to call his wife, tell her what's going on. She tries to run away. Uh, she gets pushed off a cliff and left for dead. She is not dead. She sure uh, isn't. She spends the rest of the movie hunting down Richard and his two dirtbag friends uh, and completing her transmogrification into a... Uh, vengeful warrior spirit would you call it a phoenix like rebirth i would actually and i think the symbolism <laughs> of the movie would agree with you uh so this movie as i said came out in 2017 was very well reviewed when it came out uh and is extremely different from the last house on the left but also very much belongs to the same lineage uh revenge is part of the re-examination of the rape revenge movie um, and sort of the reclamation of it from male filmmakers and storytellers uh, to women telling the story of their, like, women getting to tell women's stories of um, violation and revenge. Um, what did you think of this movie, Pete? 
we we have talked off air about how to make some sort of John Wick or badass female assassin movie episode happen. Spoiler, we're probably still going to make that happen. I'm I'm going to push it at some point. Um the stylization of this felt in line with that with with that current mode of filmmaking. It is a highly stylized film. It looks gorgeous. Uh even when what is being sh- uh, displayed is horrific. Um there were a couple scenes such as when someone is digging glass out of their feet that I was just like, "Oh, oh, 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 oh mm, no, no." Uh, <laughs> um but also at the end I d- d- during the final climactic showdown I kind of was thinking to myself, just like, who is this movie for? Um, it is... The the ending... I, I don't know. Something about the ending just felt draggy. It, it felt simultaneously exhilarating and dragging for me. So, um, spoilers for a movie that you should have done your homework on. At the end, uh, it is Jen and her uh, boyfriend, who turns out to be arguably the worst of the bunch, and he isn't even the one who raped her. Um, but he seems like the worst of the, of the bunch. Um... Having a, a gunfight in his incredible, you know, modernist mansion in the desert. So we're running through hallways and there's some wild, fun disorientation. Like there's some very cool editing and camera moves that like make you as as confused about where people are as the characters themselves are. So you're like, you can never be sure if someone's going to turn the corner and see someone else or not. And like that was was very gripping and on edge. But also just the gallons of blood all over the place was at first interesting and cool and then it just kept going and going and going and at some point i'm just like oh my god this needs to wrap up i'm no longer entertained i'm no longer thrilled i'm no longer on board with this we need to just like like come on let's keep moving here Um, allow me to allow me to answer your question about who is this movie for uh it's for me Okay. That scene that scene could have gone on for seven extra minutes and I would have been <laughs> thrilled. I mean, like, I liked so much of what that scene was doing, but at a certain point I hit a wall and I'm like, this scene needs to end. And then it kept going, and I'm like, oh my god, like I under I, I get it, I understand, this is very cool, but like wrap it up. Also, that uh speaking of comedy, we were speaking of comedy with Wes, Wes Craven, that scene was outrageously comedic because they accidentally switched to some like uh, TV channel, uh, what, what like that? Just uh, some some infomercial, uh, which is playing through most of this like very intense fight scene, um, which I thought was like very Paul Verhoeveny of just like we're we're doing a major send up of capitalism, you know, all the rest of it, and also buckets of blood. Uh, I'm all there for that, but at some at some point this movie, I think I hit a wall, and I'm just like. I do think overall it's too long. It's too long and every... It's too long overall and every scene I think is too long. Um, Like, if you took this movie and cut every scene by a little, then the overall movie would be shorter, each scene would be tighter, and it would all sing a lot more beautifully. Part of it, I think, is that by the end you are supposed to be as exhausted as Jen is. I get that. So also, full disclosure, I watched this, I, I, I put this on at 7.30 on a Sunday morning, because that was the only time I was able to watch it, 
And maybe that wasn't the best time to watch this movie. <laughs> like, I I acknowledge that fact, but also, woof. No, I think that part of this movie, like part of the experience of watching this movie is supposed to feel a little bit like you're running a marathon. Like, once she gets pushed over that cliff, things do not ever let up for Jen yeah. until she has emerged victorious from, uh, you know, the the hunting game that these men are playing with her. And I think that part of the experience of watching it is sort of reflective of um, Jen's experience, just like the unrelenting nature right. of what she ends up going through. Right. There were a lot of a, a lot of very, very good visual moments in this. Um, the various looks through the pink and blue glass in the guy's mansion. Great. Uh, like the weird uh, peyote trip uh, as she's branding a phoenix onto her abdomen to cauterize a wound. Uh, great. <laughs> or at least visually interesting. Um, I like that at the beginning, her... Uh, you keep saying boyfriend. I'm going to go with lover uh, because he's married and his wife doesn't know. So... <laughs> uh, uh, like, he seems like a, you know other than the fact that he's cheating on her, but also French, uh, seems like a decent enough, like, finance bro guy that whatever. But very quickly into the movie, like, the instant he pushes... The instant he's like, cool, what will it take to buy your silence? It's like, oh, you're almost worse than the person who actually raped her? And then as the movie goes on, I think that just gets more and more reinforced. Um... He's the baddie at the end of the film, uh, where she gets her revenge on her actual rapist in as, as her second out of three kills. Uh, and I, I think that's saying a lot. Like, it's not just it's not just the people who actively inflict harm. It's the entire system. It's everyone who is actively encouraging, supporting and, uh, you know, <clears throat> supporting like like creating those systems that allow that abuse and harm to happen um, oh yeah which which are the, which are the true villains uh, this movie i mean this movie is about the entitlement of men yes it is about the way so the the rape comes about because she gets a little flirty with this guy the night before and he decides that that means that she wants to have sex with him. And the next day when she's like not interested, he's like, well, you were last night. So what changed? And it's like she doesn't she doesn't have to explain herself like it's he feels entitled to her because on, on the one hand, I was a little frustrated with her for not just being like F off. I don't want to sleep with you. Um on the well, other hand, then you don't get this movie. And also some people like, yes, th like there's lots of positions of power. There's lots of, you know, I was going to say I threats of violence. I don't because I, I believe that the so. So there is a line that you have probably heard. I believe it's a quote from Margaret Atwood. That is men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that I think is Number one, absolutely true. But anytime any but anytime any woman has hedged because a guy was getting overly confrontational with her, the calculus in our brain is always, 
what can I say to get myself out of this as quickly as possible that will not enrage this potentially violent person? Because she doesn't know this guy. Right. So she has no idea. And and the first time she saw him, he had a a powerful hunting rifle in his hand. Mm Mm-hmm. So don't don't be mad at Jen for I everything that she does in that scene. I one hundred percent understood. Okay, done it. Like first off, as the guy, done <laughs> and done. Like um, and I guess I guess what I am trying to explain to you is that from a from a female standpoint, I I totally got what she was trying to do there. Like she goes out to breakfast, finds that Richard is not there. She is alone at the breakfast table with this creep. And then she is like, mm, actually going to go pack my stuff. Bye. So mm-hmm. she leaves. Right. And, and then he follows. He follows into the bedroom where she has just taken a shower and is in an extremely vulnerable position, which is not a position of strength on her part. Right. So like as from an outside perspective, I can say, oh, yeah, she should have told him to just F off. But thinking about, like, she is she is young, she is small, she is naked or getting dressed. This guy has already violated her space by coming into this private area and is now being extremely confrontational. Like, in, in that whole situation... Mm-hmm. I feel very strongly that she is trying to figure out what to say that will make him go away, but also not make him angry. And to just get angry herself is, I don't think that's the survival instinct that happens there. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, First off, everything you're saying, it takes precedence over everything I'm saying because of the (laughs) particular context of this conversation. Uh, I I was just trying to, as I was watching the scene, I was going through like, I was I was trying to put a cultural lens on it, which would have in a way that would help like that would help me understand uh the scene through a, a, a cultural lens rather than simply a gender lens. But and the I'm gender sure lens I... itself might be all that is necessary. Yeah, like, I'm not sure I'm not sure we need to filter it through, oh, these people are French. Sure. I think it's just this is a man and this is a woman who has no perceived power in this space. Right. Right. Um, because I, I also think it's important to look at the scene before it when Jen is, you know, drinking and dancing. Cause I, I also think there is a critique that could be made of like, it, it's the, it's the like, Oh, look what she was wearing. Except that Jen is a woman who is beautiful and who is, has voluntarily placed herself in a position of control with Richard. Like Mm -hmm. she has her arrangement with Richard and it makes sense to me that like the, the level at which she is used to relating to Richard and to his world is physical and through her beauty. So like that scene I think is very much about how she does feel in control in that moment because she's used to controlling men through her physicality. Well, and also she feels safe to be able to act that way. Like, because because Richard is there. Right. She thinks that she's safe with Richard. And the turning point of the first act of this movie, I think is finding out, is her finding out that, oh no, even when Richard's there, she's not safe. Right. Because Richard doesn't actually care about her. Correct. Yeah. 
Um, and all of these things I think are evident because the writer and director of this movie is a woman. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this movie in the context of last house on the left is because I think this movie is just as grindhousey in terms of the level of violence and sexuality. <laughs> it's it's even more grindhousey <laughs> in terms. Of, oh my God. This um, is, <laughs> but the, the, the cinematic gaze is so different. Um, so in, in the trailer for this movie, there was a, a, critic line that lodged in my head which was something about like it takes the male gaze and it's and a guy gouges its eyes out or something <laughs> and i'm like first off that's just as good as just keep repeating it's only a movie it's only a movie it's only a movie uh and second off other than the fact that like i mean like the last at, like the last confrontation scene richard is naked in the whole movie but, like, he's naked in the same way that Viggo Mortensen is naked in Eastern Promises. Like, there is nothing titillating about his nudity. He's covered in blood from head to toe. Um, and so I, 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 I felt like this movie didn't take the male gaze and gouge its eyes out. Um, but I, I do think <laughs> I, I do think you're you're right. Uh, you know, that this is definitely a, a grindhouse exploitation movie created entirely from a female perspective i'm i'm interested to know why you think the invert of a male gaze movie would be sexualized like i i don't think i would have assumed that just because this movie just because i was told that this movie was going to be female gazy that that would necessarily mean that i would get like sexy male bodies i feel like I, I feel like male gaze well especially thinking of last house on the left it is it, it is violent and it is brutalizing to all its women but also there's a lot of entirely needless tna because it is like shot by a man for a primarily male audience and i i think inherent to the idea of the male gaze is objectification of the female body well and so what you get in this movie is punishing men for doing that that is kind of how i read that comment hmm. because the opening sequences with jen i think are very sexualizing of her and i think that that's intentional like we meet jen and she is sucking on a lollipop but what happens is that then these men that have treated her like a sex object and uh, actually, sorry, not, not to interrupt. Uh, I think the way the film opens is we're looking at a reflection of a helicopter coming in or something through through Richard's glasses. Like we're literally seeing his gaze, mm -hmm. uh, which is relevant. Um, this movie is not subtle, but I don't need it to be. <laughs> right, right. Uh, it also looks good. Mm -hmm. I, I have to say, and this is a, a total uh, sidestep interrupt. I loved the blue sky in so much of this film. Uh, I, I feel like modern filmmakers don't shoot sky terribly well these days. Uh, and just the, the incredible blue skies and the, the, the desert, the brown desert, the contrasts, all the rest of it. Gorgeous. Um, um, yeah, I agree. That, that's not I think it is... not relevant to the male gaze conversation we're having. No, but it is very much in the vein of this movie is kind of a fairy tale. Hmm. Um, it's very Alice in Wonderlandy almost. 
<laughs> um, uh, down to the drugs that help induce the uh, the trip down the rabbit hole. Yes. One of the criticisms of this movie that I saw was that in its attempt to become a female power fantasy, it just becomes another version of a male fantasy. Like we trade that kind of baby doll innocence for like a Sarah Connors. It's, it's your Joss Whedon problem. Yeah, a little bit. I would argue that it is just as much a female power fantasy as it is a male sexual one. Like, I don't mind watching, like, this beautiful woman get half naked and, you know, covered in blood. And murder, um, murder the hell out of a bunch of scumbags. And murder the hell. Yeah, it's almost like she is, na- like, her being in ripped up, in a ripped up sports bra and booty shorts is, like, beside the point. Like, the the... The um the voyeuristic part for me is watching her shoot that giant hunting rifle that's like as <laughs> tall as she is. I mean, by the time she ends up in like the sports bra <laughs> and booty shorts, she's so covered in blood and muck and grime that like, yeah, she she's a very attractive person, but like she is not presented as like Amazon warrior, you know, pristine type. It's like, no, you look like you've been through hell and back. And the mm-hmm. consequence of that is that you're not wearing a lot of clothes. Um, yes. It's not that, like... And also, the camera never ogles her at that point, which is also part of it, you know? The, the camera's much more focused on the horrible image of, of dude pulling glass out of his foot. Um, <laughs> which it films in almost a lovingly, like, oh, I, close-up I, way. I was so, so upset with that <laughs> sequence. <laughs> Uh, I, I was watching that with uh, with Ozzy, my dog, on my lap, and, and he was passed out. And I was just like, no, no, can't, no. I was uh, shocked he didn't wake up during it. <laughs> um, Ozzy has better things to do. Yeah, like sleep and not watch yes. that. It is uh, at various points he did perk up and pay attention. Uh, and I could not tell you what any of those points were. <laughs> so there we go. Um, at this point, should we jump I to our like final? Us... Yeah. Yes. So our last piece of homework is the 2020 uh, "Promising Young Woman," written and directed by Emerald Fennel. Uh, this movie won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, and tells the story of Cassie, a dropout medical student who spends her weekends pretending to be drunk in bars so that she will get taken home uh, by horrible men um, who then try to take advantage of her. Uh, And she, at some point, usually when things are about to go way too far, will snap back into sobriety uh, and shock her would-be escorts, um, basically scare them straight and what we find out over the course of the movie is that she is doing this in an effort to defend the memory of her friend Nina, who was with her in medical school, has been her best friend her entire life, and who was assaulted at a party and later committed suicide. Um, Cassie eventually uh, hears about Nina's assailant getting married and infiltrates his bachelor party uh, after um, exacting vengeance on the other people that she perceives to be responsible for Nina's death, including the dean of the college, uh, their former friend, and the lawyer who helped her assailant get off. 
this is a complicated movie that I have complicated feelings about and wanted to do this whole episode so that I could help untangle my feelings about it. Um, but before we get to my feelings, Pete, I am interested to know uh, what you thought about this one. Off air, I told you that I wrote up a long document to work through my own, I will quote myself, complex moral grapplings, uh, <laughs> unquote, with this movie. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think anyone comes off good in this movie, including Cassie, played by the amazing uh, uh, Carrie Mulligan. Um, mm -hmm. First off, this movie is about people approximately our age. So it is very easy to think like, oh, you're in your mid 30s now. Um, and so you yeah. were in college, in undergrad in, you know, approximately oh, four to ten, making a wide range there. And then in medical school from approximately oh, eight to uh, like call it 12 to 14. Yeah. Cassie turns 30 in this movie. Right. Uh, and it came out in 2020. Um, so, uh, so there are multiple vectors of complication here. The first is Bo Burnham's character. He's the sweet boy who she, uh, meets was in her, uh, medical school class with, yeah, she was a med soon. She dropped out because of everything that happened that Martha just explained. Um, so was, Ka so was, uh, Nina. So was everyone else involved in this. So Bo Burnham shows up. Uh, as a, uh, a former classmate from that medical uh, time, uh, she's working in a coffee shop. It's a rom-com moment for a while. It, it, for, a mo for various points, this movie's a rom-com. Um, uh, please watch our, listen to our sister show, Love Ya, for more about <laughs> rom-coms. <laughs> um, but then we learned that there's more to that than, than meets the eye. Um, so, like, Burnham's character is very complicated. I have a lot of thoughts about that and how that's portrayed. Uh, portrayed, um, But also, Cassie herself is not actually, like, she's doing some weird vigilante stuff, which, like, fine, cool, you're an avenging angel. I'm on board with that. But also, at one point, she talks with uh, Nina's mother, played by the, the, the great uh, Molly Shannon, uh, who's basically like, you need to let this go and go live your own life. And of all the people in this movie, I kind of agree with her the most. Um, like, Cassie needs to, like, go see a therapist, live her own life, live, and, and you know, bury the dead. Um, and also, Cassie at one point, like, is parked, like, is passed out or something in the middle of the road. And some dude is like honking at her because she's parked in the middle of the road. And she goes, takes the tire iron to his car and like his windshield. And he calls her like a crazy bitch. And it, and you know what? Like, I don't disagree with him. There's a person parked in the middle of the road. And then she comes at you with a tire iron. I'd probably say the exact same thing. Um, so like, she's not, presented as a like if we're talking about our, our moral uh spectrum of white gray black she is a definite gray to you know like in in a solid gray situation so you can't inherently root for her there are there is trouble that she needs to you know address that makes her more than simply like a a pure raw heroine um on the other hand, you know, everything involved in this situation is about the fact that it is a 
let's call it 2010 just to make the number, I guess she's 30, so let's, let's call it 2012 to make the numbers nice and easy. Back in 2012, a, a classmate of hers raped her best friend. It was a classic, uh, classic in the worst sense of that term, drunk college party where everyone is drunk, but also Nina was too drunk to consent, which makes it rape. Uh, and the college did nothing about it. The local law enforcement did nothing about it. In fact, it appears that they kind of buried it. Um, this led to Nina's downhill spiral and eventual, I think we're led to assume suicide. Definitely. She's no longer with us. I think that is the, the assumption. Like yes. she definitely no longer with us. We assume suicide, um, which led to, to, to Cassie's own downward like, you know, she she dropped out along with Nina to to help her. And then once once Nina uh, uh, killed herself or left this mortal coil, however, that happened, uh, never really recovered from that. Um, and and so it's like, yeah, uh, Al, the the rapist, not a good dude, obviously. Like and not say like, but Cassie also not a good dude. But like you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of moral gray in this movie. So I don't disagree with anything you've said, and I actually would argue pretty vehemently that the movie doesn't want you to think that what Cassie is doing is good. Mm -hmm. I I think that the point of this movie is not is not the getting vengeance, but is the point of this movie is showing how something like this, um, ruins lives mm. <laughs> and how like Cassie is broken and is unable to move on from this thing. Um, this horrible thing that happened, she's dealing with it the only the way that she knows how, but I don't think that the movie would argue that the way that she's dealing with it is good. I would definitely say that the movie thinks it's unhealthy. I, 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 I would, I would guess that the filmmaker's perspective is, uh, Molly Shannon's perspective. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, I also think that the point of this movie is that in, in so, like in the case of something like this, there are no good guys. Mm -hmm. So like Bo Burnham, um, you know, seems like a nice guy, like see like his relationship with Cassie seems to be really good for her. Um, and then we find out that he was at the party that Nina got raped at, um, that he watched it happen and that he didn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And when Cassie finds out about that, which she finds out because she watches the video um, of that, the assault. That she, that she only got because she like mentally traumatized another former classmate who who had that video in the first place. So like it's onions, it's onion layers of, of sort right. of. But Problems. so, yeah. you know, then I think then I think we as the audience are kind of presented with this question of do we still think that Bo Burnham is culpable in the way that Cassie clearly does? Um, it, like she, she immediately is like, oh, nope, <laughs> you're going to tell me what I need to know and then you're never going to see me again. And um. You know, I think I think the question that we are kind of left with is, 
do we think that is he still is he still guilty in the way that Cassie thinks that he is? I this this will likely not surprise you. A lot of the the notes I was writing for myself to think through this were about Bo Burnham's character. Um, Here, here's the thing. I think we are supposed to start with that question. And I think that we're supposed to start with that question partially because he is being played by Bo Burnham. Well, and here's the thing. I actually don't like, I know that he's got a new Netflix special out. I know that he's in the big sick. I don't really know who Bo Burnham is. So like that aspect didn't do any. No, but but he's, he's a nice guy, you know, in general, the men in this movie are played by white men who have been around in comedic stuff who we have been trained from other properties to like, like Schmidt from New Girl shows up in this movie. And uh, he I, I assume he was the uh, douchebag friend. Best man. Yeah, he's the best man. Yeah. Um. So like, I think that Emerald he... Fennel populates this movie with white men that we are initially predisposed to thinking kindly of. I gotta say, other than Bo Burnham ever everyone vibed as a bro and like they seem like nice bros but they were bros and so like the idea that like you said the guy's name was schmidt in um new girl yes. uh mm-hmm. the guy looked exactly like a schmitty uh, <laughs> uh like the fact that he was in a dorm room when all that was happening totally checks out um but i also think that there is then a very deliberate point made um that Bo in regards is there too. to Bo Burnham, totally, because when the police come to question him, well, and also about Al- Cassie's Allison disappearance. <laughs> oh yeah, like no, there are no innocent people in this movie. So, so my 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 thought on this was um, my the guilt that I assigned Bo Burnham was very much dependent on, and this could, I I will fully admit, at various points during this movie, I was on my laptop looking up uh, possible homework assignments for our next episode. (laughs) Um, And not, not, like, fully committing to this movie. Um, so, So this could be something that I totally missed. But, I, because the dean of the school definitely seemed to bury the investigation like there was no actual um there's no meaningful i should say police investigation there's no meaningful school investigation everyone got lawyered up or at least uh, uh, the guy got lawyered up um my sense my my feeling on, on burham would shift dramatically based on if he was questioned during the school's investigation and if he, if he covered for his, his buddy during that or not. Um, I, and, abs- and, and like, I, 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 I feel like the scene at the end where like the cops question him and he like covers uh, and like, and disavows might lead us to believe that he, he did the same thing back then. I would be shocked if he had even been questioned. Well, and that and that's what I'm coming up with. Like, if he had not been questioned, then I feel more sympathy for him. If he had been questioned and had had, uh, you know, covered and, and disavowed and all the rest of it, I would feel far less sympathy for him. Partly because, and this is a admittedly bad excuse, 
it's a party and he's drunk as much as everyone else is. Um, That's the point, though. I know. That everybody watched this happen and said nothing. Right. But like, like I, I, <laughs> I, I know and I understand. But like, again, my my level of gut reaction, like, oh, how could you? Is entirely based on the like, did were, were you part of the group of everyone watching knowns that happened, or were you part of a group that was then asked later and you disavowed? Um, and I, I I know that that is literally the question that the filmmaker is asking us to grapple with, and and I think both of us are grappling with it. Um, I'm not okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, like I, I am talking that up in in my my moral gray territory for for Burnham's character. Oh um, no, I don't I don't feel morally gray about Burnham's character. Okay, um, Is, do do you not feel that because of the final scene with the cops, or even without that scene, you would not feel morally gray about him? I would not feel no. I wouldn't feel morally gray about him. He. Okay. This is this is the same question that comes up when we find out about someone's participation or, um, you know, level of knowledge or something, whatever, from like, you know, however long ago. And, you know, do we still hold them responsible for it? Well, yes, we do, because in college you're still a sentient human being. And if you participate in horrible things when you're in college and nobody finds out about them that doesn't absolve you of what happened uh my my joking response is but martha they're kids uh which listeners is a reference to the movie uh because that line came up like three or four times um my my actual response is and this is a note that i i made for myself as i was trying to dissect this is um like this this is the same mm, not same uh before i say what i'm gonna say give me grace such that whatever i say treat it in a good light because i'm trying to express it in a good light and i might not say it in the right words yeah i understand uh so um this is this this is similar to what i grapple with when it comes to some situations of like cancel culture which is a combination of like how much do we weigh the sins of the past onto the present and as the farther back in the past we go how much do we weigh that thinking especially like norm mcdonald recently passed there have been many glowing eulogies about him and also stories about the 80s and 90s because back in the 80s and 90s male comedians uh did a lot of coke and were very bad people uh and also told bad jokes um uh, and also just like, like this is, th- this is a two prong approach where in one, what kind of jokes are you telling in a professional stand a situation? And those don't age well. And I think we tend to treat many of us tend to treat those in, in better lights versus how does one act? Yes. In the eighties and nineties, people absolutely knew how to behave. However, uh, the behaviors of especially men, uh, who were not good were tolerated much more then than now. And I think that's an important thing to think about when weighing the judgment of history. That all gets complicated because this supposedly took place in 2012 when, oh my God, you knew how to behave. 
Um, well, and I guess my response to that would be, what has the person done to atone for their behavior? I, I also agree with that. I think that there's, I like, when it comes to canceling people for things they've said or done, think about what era it was in that they said or did it. And that is the context you should use. But also, have they then um, uh, confessed, made made amends, done whatever is necessary, improved in some way? Have they shown growth? I um, would be really hesitant to use... I would be really hesitant to talk about context in that way because frequently the context we're talking about is no one held me responsible, so I behaved like a monster. The fr- I was using that specifically... Hmm. I was going to say I was using that specifically in the context of the jokes I was telling. Uh... Or, or, like, the jokes that were being told, this is your classic, you know, dropping a, a, a homophobic slur or a hard R kind of joke, um, which lasts all the way through the 2010s. But but then, the, like, there is the, like, there's the male comedians in the 80s and 90s who, you know, not the Bill Cosbys, but the, the, the male comedians who were certainly serial assaulters that no one held them account for i mean i think the problem is that you get you get the off-color jokes from the same place as you get the bad behavior yeah i mean and i think the point when it comes to promising young woman is that then we're shown very explicitly that bo burnham hasn't changed that he is still willing to cover up the actions of his friend right if he decides that his friendship is more important than Al being held accountable I, for what I, happened. I actually, I don't think it's about his friendship at all. I think it's about his, his livelihood. His at public that image. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's totally like I'm a podiatrist, or not a podiatrist. I'm, I'm a pediatric. Yeah. Uh, a pediatric doctor. I, I could care. It, the last scene at the wedding made it seem like he could care less if his buddy goes to jail. But he doesn't want to be implicated in whatever exactly is happening. Exactly. Yeah. So it's almost worse because it, then it's purely from self-interest rather than um, eh, that might defending. be better. That might be better than defending a rapist. Well, it's all bad. It's all it's all um, bad. But like, <laughs> um, so something I would like to just quickly address. This movie got very mixed reviews. Um, it got a lot of praise from critics, and it also got a lot of panning by people um, hmm. for... It got panned by a lot of people, and part of why I think... is Sorry, is that a, um, a, 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 a bad cinema score, good critical review situation? Yes. Okay. Um. The issue that I think people have had with it, and this is part of what makes my feelings about it so complicated, is that we are trained to find, we are trained to expect some kind of catharsis in a rape revenge movie, like Mm. whether that's on behalf of or from our victim. And this movie not only does not give that to us, I don't think, like the the final scene is whatever. Um, (laughs) Cassie does not find her. So 
Cassie is suicidal the whole movie um, and eventually is killed by Al when she threatens to reveal um, to the world what he did. She is going to carve Nina's name into his chest so that he doesn't forget her. And in a panic, he ends up killing her at his bachelor party. Which I was not expecting. I thought that was, frankly, amazing storytelling. A lot of people were, well, I mean, everyone was shocked by it because that is not the ending that we have been trained to expect from someone like Cassie. Like, I think there was a lot of feelings that because Cassie is killed in this way, there was this question of like, well, then what was the point? Mm. Is, is, Um, Is this actually successful? Like, and part of that, I think, is because it was marketed as this very, like, vigilante-ish, um, you know, punishing men for behaving badly. And I don't think that is the – I don't think that's what the movie is, but I think that's what people wanted from it. And when they didn't get that um, – hmm. Which I'm not trying to discount. I think that there are a lot of complicated things happening here. And I also don't think the movie is perfect in the way that it sort of addresses like internalized misogyny. I have a lot of issues with the with Connie Britton as the dean of the college. Um, but I also think that it's important to what the movie is trying to say that Cassie doesn't get to survive like she is she is courting death the whole movie because I don't think that she feels like she can I I don't think she feels like she has a life to live I, anymore I, I I think that other than the five minutes where it's a rom-com of her and Bo Burnham like having fun dates I don't think that she wants to live no, I absolutely don't. Yeah. Um, I think that she goes to that bachelor party at the end expecting to die. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, part of which is illustrated by the fact that she, she has, has these backup plans. She has these backup plans, like in the event of my disappearance, this tape is being released, and at the end, like the the evidence of her murder is sent to the lawyer, and Alf Al is arrested on his wedding day, and the police come in to save the day, which is certainly something. Uh, um, yep. <laughs> it, it, that, so so I, I saw on Wiki, after watching this movie, I was on the Wiki. Um, the filmmaker originally wanted the movie to end with them burning her body. And the studio was like, absolutely not. Um, so then they went back and, and crafted that sort of secondary ending and... and it, it's an ending that makes sense in the sense that, like, sure, she'd have a secondary backup plan because she'd go in assuming it might not work. But it does feel like a bit of a a rosy ending for what this well, movie is. And the problem is that the movie has set itself up, for me at least, like, I watch that and I my first thought is, well, he's going to get away with it. Like... The whole movie, the movie has spent so much time showing me how institutions protect men like him that I don't expect him to find any kind of justice mm. at I, the end. I low-key thought he'd confess, if only because this is murder, and he was clearly affected by her murder, or like by by killing her. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so as as he was being dragged away in handcuffs, I'm like, I he's probably gonna confess. But also, it's like he's gonna confess before his lawyer shows up because if his lawyer shows up, he's gonna be like, "Shut up, shut up, shut up," um, because that because that is the system and that is the structure, right? Like, yeah. But then looking at this in the context of the rape revenge movies that we've been talking about, I think people expected something more like revenge, mm. which is not this movie. <laughs> Like, this movie is not satisfying in the same way that Revenge is, and Cassie is not the same kind of vengeance angel that Jen is. Like, right. she, is, she is taking the place... She is, she is Mary's dad in this movie. Um, she is enacting vengeance on behalf of Nina, um, but she's doing it imperfectly... Because there's no other way to do it. She's like, what if Mary's dad became um, Charles Bronson and all the Death Wish movies from the 70s where it's just like, we're a vigilante going out for revenge. Uh, and that might be a stupid, uh, stupid assessment of all <laughs> this. Uh, but I'm, I'm just trying to, to contextualize uh, this in a 1970s movies uh, milieu. But I also think that this movie is very deliberately not letting you do that. I don't... Be because of all the shades of gray? Yes. Mm, mm -hmm. One of the things that I want to talk about, which you addressed a little bit in um, Last House on the Left, is how these movies are advertised. Because I think that the advertising for this movie was, was very misleading, but I think mm. it was deliberately so. I I think that the advertising for this movie is part of the movie experience because at the end of the day, I think this movie wants to be unsatisfying. Get some dudes in the multiplex so that they can be like uncomfortable with the situation. And even like getting people um, expecting that kind of like that bloody victory vengeance. Mm -hmm. Like you, you want her to carve Nina in in dude's chest. Right. And then yeah. I think we are supposed to ask ourselves, we didn't get that because like we don't get anything that Cassie is not going to let herself get, if that makes sense. Like Cassie is never going to let herself have that moment of ultimate triumph. So we as the audience don't get to have it because she's and so whether... self-sabotaging. Yes. Mm -hmm. And because at the end of the day, there's no end to her vengeance like there's always going to be another terrible guy there's always right. going to be even if she another... carves, even if she was able to get away with this like carving in the chest get away all the rest of it in a week she'd be back in the bars acting drunk because it's still not gonna next... at right. the end of the day nina is just as dead she is um uh guy pierce in memento never able to remember the success that she got that's a horrible reference, but uh, I'm sticking with it. <laughs> so I, I do feel that part of what people struggled with with this movie is that it was framed as being this like new kind of rape revenge movie. And I I think that that was deliberate because it isn't. Interesting. I so I don't know if I actually saw any trailers for this movie. Um, it, It's very possible I did. Uh, it came out right at the cusp of like it never got released in theaters 
but also I probably saw some movies. I was going to say, watch the trailer for it because the trailer definitely implies that this is going to be like Carrie Mulligan goes to the bar and visits violence upon the men that try to take advantage of her. Sure, sure. And she doesn't really. Like she lectures them and then leaves. She, I mean, like, I, I think it's a classic, like, and and this is kind of called out early on. Um, uh, actually, one one of my favorite like this movie is weirdly crazy stacked. Um, but one of my favorite uh, like oh they're in this movie uh, is Sam Richardson who plays Paul the uh, like basically like the black guy of the group of of folks that she is picking up at the various bars. Um, and he plays a very nice man in Veep. Um. And so I saw him in this. I'm like, oh, dude from Veep. Cool. See, but this is what I'm telling you. I think most of the men were cast that way. Right. So, uh, so, um, like the, like she is going to the bars to pick up quote unquote nice guys to show them that they're not nice guys, you know, like, like, like to show them that like for all your nice guy dumb for all your like, yeah, I, I treat women well, the rest of it. Uh, when push comes to shove, you might not. She's not going to biker bars, right? Like she's not. She she's going. No, she's to going to white collar Exactly right. Exactly right. Like she she's is waiting. Yeah, she she pretends to be drunk to the point of being incapacitated and waits for the guy that offers to drive her home. Right. So we are going long. We're going <laughs> very. I, we're going um, very long. <laughs> but I wanted to talk about this idea of catharsis because I think that is a sort of key point of what the rape revenge movie offers and is what promising young woman is denying us. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause we are only able to get catharsis at after Cassie's I, death, there which was, takes the shine off the apple quite a bit. I, I I'm going to say, <laughs> I, I don't know if I liked promising young woman, but I would not give it a bad review because I'm still sitting here grappling with it. And in my mm-hmm. mind, that makes it a good review movie. Um, but yeah, no catharsis. But I, I also think that this is a female filmmaker who is looking at what a rape revenge movie is and holding a mirror up to it. So like, I, I don't think I would call Promising Young Woman a, a rape revenge movie, but it is definitely in conversation with them. Like, it is asking us, what did we expect from this movie? Why are we mad that we didn't get that? And also, this is, I it's, I mean, Promising a Woman is stylized, but I also think it is supposed to be a more true vision to what women actually go through. So, like, we don't all get to be Jen who are discovering our inner warrior women in the desert. Like sometimes Martha, we under- are you saying it that if you got shoved off a cliff and like impaled by a tree, you wouldn't immediately like pick up a hunting rifle, brand yourself with a beer can and, uh, be an expert marksman, marksman. Who can say what <laughs> right. I would do? For, first off, situation. first off, sorry, I should step back. I don't mean to disparage your skills. <laughs> No, but I, I, I do think that the point of promising a woman is partially like, People undergo assault or they see loved ones undergo assault and they don't know how to deal with it. And instead of enacting these fantasies of revenge, yes. like 
we do stupid stuff and react in self-destructive ways. Um, so I, I think that Promising Young Woman is kind of riding a line between like stylized fantasy and more true vision of what trauma looks like. Yes. And at the end of the day, trauma is inherently not going to be satisfying. At, at almost every moment in this movie, I just kept thinking like, Jen, listen to Molly Shannon and go see a therapist. Uh, like, you know, like you, you need to live for the living and not die for the dead. And I think um, that I think the point of Cassie's character is that she can't. Right. Like yes. she, she the movie knows that that would be better for her. Um, but she the point is that she can't. Right. So to to close us out, I would like to read a couple excerpts from a review of this movie that the published in The New Yorker. This is how Promising Young Woman refigures the rape revenge movie written by Carmen Maria Machado who is an incredible writer. Um, she wrote um, a collection of short stories called uh, Her Body and Other Parties. Oh, okay. That's um, why I know that name. She wrote a graphic novel called The Low, Low Woods, which was one of the best things I read last year. Um, yeah, she writes a lot about um, women and the body and agency and all of that. Um, so I would like to read just a couple, the, the whole review is worth reading, but I'm going to read just a couple of excerpts, uh, to kind of close us out. And will you drop the link to this review in the show notes? I will. In fact, fantastic. Uh, if there is a broader cultural confusion regarding how to tackle rape revenge films, Alexandra Heller Nichols wrote in a critical study of the genre published a decade ago, it is because the films themselves reflect a broader cultural confusion about rape more generally. It is not surprising, then, that Promising Young Woman, despite receiving a number of positive reviews, is an unusually divisive movie. Critics have lamented its cynicism, its rejection of realism, its supposed lack of anything sufficiently new. Many of these verdicts raise the questions that are inherent to the genre and its subject matter, whether cynicism is appropriate, whether realism is necessary, or catharsis a requirement. But it's the idea of newness that I keep returning to, how recognizing the movie's relationship with its forebears is crucial to seeing the dimensions of its ambition. Hmm. One could spend paragraphs listing the illusions and promising young woman to its predecessors in the genre. There's a visual motif provided by a necklace, a seeming reference to Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left from 1972. The film's central ride-or-die mm. friendship invokes both Thelma and Louise and Baje Moy. Its kinky scenario as cover for revenge plot calls to mind dissent. Its use of religious iconography echoes I Spit on Your Grave, Thriller, A Cruel Picture, and Ms. 45. But the movie also departs from these films at key points with a constellation of purposeful choices. The rape itself is not shown. Fennel resists the genre's tendency to reveal, often at great length, in horrifying... Fennel resists the genre's tendency to revel, often at great length, in horrifying depictions of sexual violence. The crime at the center of Promising Young Woman is, like most rapes, but unlike most those that happen in these films, committed by someone who knows the victim. Uh, I'd also say that, in a way, unlike the other two movies we watched, um... 
in in the sense that any rape can be banal this is the most banal of of rapes like this is not a escaped murder psycho gang in new york city this is not some Mm -hmm. rich rich french dudes you know reveling in their power this is drunk college kids Mm -hmm. um and that is the you know the, the the most common type that would be experienced by people of our you know uh, socioeconomic and and uh, uh, educational class. Yeah, uh, Machado touches on that too. That the um, you know rape is both um, mundane and also mundane is a better word than banal. Horrifying. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, it's a complicated movie. It's a complicated topic. Um, I I think that you know there is I, what I what I am appreciating about. Um, the films that we are getting now is that I I feel like the genre is being examined by people critically to kind of look at what we are getting out of it and how it can be reclaimed by the victim rather than um, owned by Mm. like the male proxy. Thank you, Pete, for allowing me full, <laughs> to fully self-indulge uh, in the topic for this episode. At, at one point, you texted me, you're, you're like, I hope we're still friends. <laughs> I did, yes. <laughs> um, do you want to tell our listeners what we are talking about for our next episode? <laughs> uh, well, uh, the, the joke I'm about to make is entirely appropriate. Uh, listeners, next episode we indulge, we we encourage you to drink the Kool Aid with us because we are going to be talking about cults. Uh, yes, and in fact, one of those episodes, one of the things we're going to assign as homework is um a documentary about the Jonestown massacre because we want to interrogate that uh idea of drinking the Kool Aid as what it means to be in a cult. Um, Martha. What is yes. that Jonestown Massacre documentary that we're watching? Uh, the Jonestown documentary uh, is located on YouTube, and it is called uh, The Jonestown Massacre Paradise Lost. And the link to that is going to be in the show notes. Yes, sir. Um, and then what is the uh, the other assignment that you yourself assigned? So so listeners, yeah. we assigned a, a nonfiction uh, documentary about Jonestown and then two fiction um, uh, uh, films, movies, uh, yeah, both kind of about, well, one's definitely about deprogramming <laughs> and the other is about maybe deprogramming and also cults in general. Uh, yeah, I have also selected The Endless, a 2017 movie uh, written and directed by Justin Benson and directed by Aaron Moorhead. Uh, and I am assigning the 2011 uh, movie uh, directed by Sam Durkin, starring Elizabeth Olsen and John Hawkes, uh, Martha, Marcy, May Marlene. Uh, this is the first time that our Martha is watching Martha, Marcy, May Marlene. And we all know how much I love a story with my name on it. That's true. We'll see how much you enjoyed this story. <laughs> um, I honestly have no idea whether you'll like it or not. We'll uh, find out. We'll find out. Um, so. But until then, if you would like more of our show, I invite you to check out our sister show, 
Love Ya, which updates on the same feed on alternating Wednesdays. Uh, there was no episode last week because I was too sick and had no voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our next episode continues to be uh, about the adult rom-com um, The Perfect Fit, which is available for streaming on Netflix. Is that a Cinderella situation or is the fit not about shoes uh it is about shoes it is about a fashion blogger who gets very taken with a shoemaker oh yes um yeah i'm looking forward to that uh you can follow this show on all the social medias at dydyh podcast uh if you are still looking for content um including facebook instagram and twitter you can find me on all the places at Magical Martha. Uh, Pete, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm talking politics and pop culture. Um, and also Dune, because, hey, are we all getting excited for Dune? Yes, we are. Gonna watch it in my living room as God intended. Mm, I'm gonna try to rent out an IMAX screen as... Oh, as as, really? Ma, as Ma Deeb intended. Can <laughs> um, you tell me when you do that? Because Bill and I might come up and join your theater party. Cool. If that's, I, if that's acceptable. So, Loki, I thought there was no IMAX closer to me than, than the one that shut down Navy Pier. But I'm recently informed that there's one, like, very close to me. So, yeah, I'll let you guys know if this ends up happening. Because we would also contribute to that rental fee. My water is your water. We'll make this work. Fantastic. <laughs> um, stay tuned for stay tuned for our Dune themed episode. <laughs> um, anything I'm forgetting? I I should plug my newsletter, but I honestly haven't written an issue of the newsletter since like January. Your so newsletter that's... was the only thing uh, that you were forgetting, <laughs> other than um, please, uh, you know, you know where to find us on the podcatchers. You are currently listening to us. Rate, review, and subscribe. That's how the algorithm gremlins can uh, bump us and jump us up. And stay tuned in a couple of episodes for a very special announcement. Yes. I, in fact, I believe at the end of next episode is going to be that very special announcement. Yeah, so we got some exciting stuff planned. Yeah. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Um, uh, enjoy doing your homework. Can you end this episode correctly? Class dismissed. Heck yeah. <laughs> I have to go to bed. Also, I do too. It's eleven o'clock. <laughs> it's eleven o'clock. <laughs> All right.